Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. Always a great transition there, bright and influential, my amazing co-host, the astonishing Liz Lyman. Liz, how are you today? I'm doing awesome. Thank you so much. How about yourself? I'm doing well, and you know, at some point, but not anywhere in the near future, I'm going to run out of adjectives to describe you, but we got a long way to go. So, I was going to say, uh, no, no, no time soon. We're going to keep <laughs> it going. Well, we're, uh, uh, we've got a great guest for you uh, today. Uh, on the line right now is Dr. Christopher Brown, the second president of Kentucky State University. Sir, how are you? Oh, very well. Thank you for having me. No, it's a real pleasure, and uh, we, we've, uh, uh, we're, we're excited to talk to you, particularly because of the work that you're doing uh, with diversity and inclusion and, and everything that's happening uh, in society today. But, you know, uh, uh, it's important that we assess how people that we care about are doing. So how are you doing, sir? How's your health? How's your family uh, during this very, very difficult time we're living in right now? Well, certainly, uh, thank you for asking. It's a, a rare question these days. Everyone is usually asking, have you, did you, is it finished? Uh, but mm. certainly this uh, global pandemic uh, is unlike anything I've seen uh, before. Uh, I've been in higher education a long time, done H1N1, avian flu, swine flu, hurricanes. Uh, but mm. this is unbelievable. Fortunately, uh, we have been in full compliance with uh, CDC guidelines and uh, WHO guidelines and have been uh, safe. Uh, I don't know if I'm fully sane, the social distancing and the uh, change of uh, normal lifestyle is very, very different, but, uh, but surviving sure. and the university is thriving. And so I'm glad that my family, my friends, to the best of my knowledge, uh, and the campus are doing well. Hopefully, you and your families are are doing well as well. Well, let's let's get into it a little bit about Kentucky State University. I mean, you know, I think a big question you can answer as you move along for us is how are your students doing, and and you know what's their psyche like at this time. But why don't you tell us just a little bit of background uh, about Kentucky State University? You know, I read online it's 130 years old. Uh, but uh, uh, give us just a, a quick once over for our audience to, uh, to just learn a little bit more about Kentucky State. Absolutely. This is our 134th year now. I thought we're getting ready for, I was just before uh, joining you all, I was preparing uh, some outlines for our 134th Founders Day in October. Uh, the university founded in uh, 1886. Uh, here on the highest hill of the capital city of Frankfurt, uh, known as the College on the Hill. Uh, and uh, it's been here 
uh, providing educational access as a part of the nation's uh, land-grant movement. Uh, we, people don't really think about the land-grant movement much, but uh, after the Civil War, before and after the Civil War, uh, President Abraham Lincoln founded uh, a group of institutions, uh, the, the 1862 schools, which were um, places like Texas A&M, uh, University of Kentucky, uh, uh, Florida and Gainesville, uh, Clemson, uh, all of your big agriculture schools, Auburn, uh, LSU, to make sure that the, the country had industrial education, that it was applied, not just liberal arts, but that people could, could do mechanical work with their hands, had a military focus. Um, certainly there was some racial strife, uh, and so everyone didn't get to go to those schools. And so in 1890, they passed the second moral act that founded uh, a group of schools like Florida A&M, South Carolina State, North Carolina A&T, Southern uh, University, Kentucky State was among them. Uh, and so uh, those were open access institutions. And so uh, we've been here, large agriculture program, large nursing. Uh, and so we do uh, pre-profession, uh, pushing people into uh, industries with a human and uh, business outcome focus, nursing, criminal justice. Um, and one of our great alums, we've, we've had a lot of alums, uh, for those who are into art, Manita Sleep, who was the longtime photographer for Ebony Magazine uh, as a Kentucky State University alum, but but uh, Whitney Young was one of the major leaders of the Urban League uh, in America, is also a Kentucky State University alum. So uh, really proud to be able to serve as the 18th president uh, during the time when the university is growing uh, and uh, trying to keep it strong and stable through this pandemic, so it'll be around for years to come. You know, one of the things that uh, it's pre-pandemic and, and a little bit during pandemic is, you know, there's been a lot of press and news around, you know, historically black colleges and universities really seeing trouble, uh, declining enrollment, maybe not as much interest as, as they had in the past. And, and, you know, you're mentioning that you're, you're thriving right now. You, what have you done at Kentucky State to, to kill that narrative on HBCUs struggling at this time? Yeah, well, a year ago, uh, the, the theme going into Founders Day was moving from surviving to thriving. Uh, and what, what happened uh, nationally uh, is uh, it's, it's even the, sometimes the way we even manage our homes. Sometimes uh, there's a, a new thing, a new opportunity. Uh, I, I won't name brands, but there's one gas station uh, chain whose coffee I really like, not a big coffee person, but I want to have coffee. That's like my favorite place to get coffee. Certainly there were some big box coffee places that came along. Everybody right. stopped going to those old places to go to the new big box. Uh, but uh, but that, that old coffee is good. And it uh, it has a role and it and it has something to play in terms of life and access and ease of getting your coffee and stay waiting in line. And so over time, sometimes people migrate back. And I think that's what happened uh, with HBCUs. 
they did a great job in providing the social access function, uh, but we never really uh, communicated our role in the higher education landscape. Uh, and so many people think that uh, HBCUs are just for um, black students or that they just have black faculty uh, or that it's overwhelmingly, but uh, we're, we range in different different configurations. Kentucky State is uh, blessed to be the nation's most diverse HBCU, which means that we are almost at the 50-50 mark on every index for faculty, students, and staff. But there are places like Bluefield State and uh, West Virginia uh, that are like 90-some percent white. Uh, but they were founded at a time uh, when educational access was limited and they had a specific mission. And so I think people are rediscovering uh, HBCUs and the role they can play in providing educational access and workers uh, for the American economy. And so I think you'll see uh, some buoyancy come back for them. Uh, in Kentucky, what we did uh, was clearly shift uh, from being very insular when I arrived, the campus was very insular. We talked to ourselves, worked with ourselves. And so people didn't know much about us. So we began information. And the more they knew, it's like, oh, we didn't know you had, uh, we, we provide the nursing all the way up from associate all the way up to the doctorate in nursing. People were like, oh, I didn't know that. So nursing grows. They didn't know uh, our, the work that we had in criminal justice. Uh, one of our political scientists is on CNN and Fox all the time. And so like, oh, we didn't know that. So once they began to know more about it, uh, they were attracted to the campus. And the second is we made it really clear of our purpose and that our purpose was to uh, provide workers uh, for the Commonwealth in the region and to take families, young people, and advance them on to graduate education. And we stay in that sweet spot uh, and just drive it. And so it's really led to uh, this last year, we've had record enrollment uh, in summer school. And now going into the fall semester, I'm booking my second hotel uh, for students uh, because it will be the, the highest institutional enrollment in over a decade. And that's in the middle of this pandemic. Well, congratulations. Yeah. yeah, that's unbelievable. And Liz, I, I'm sure you want to jump in and ask a bunch of questions, so I'm going to turn it over to you. I have tons of questions because this is a, a subject that I'm really curious about to kind of piggyback on some of the questions that you asked, and hopefully it won't seem redundant, but I'm just very, very curious oh, no. about this because I attended one of the schools that you mentioned, University of Florida, as an undergrad, and I have a ton of friends and sorority sisters that attended Florida A&M. And I was always in awe of the outcomes at some of the HBCUs, the amount of doctors that graduate from there, the firsts of, you know, this is the first, I just saw something um, online and it was, you know, you, you see a lot of schools that are in the HBCU realm that are graduating so many uh, notable doctors and, and numbers of uh, professionals in a vast array of fields. What do you think that 
the HBCUs and you have a ton of experience from being at Fisk and Alcorn State and at Southern, what do you think the HBCUs are doing so differently to get these outcomes that we're not seeing at some of the other predominantly white institutions? Because in higher ed as a, as a, as a sector, we're always bemoaning that our, our students that are black and our students of color are not graduating or being retained at the same outcomes as those that are white. So clearly they can be successful because we see that at the HBCUs. What's happening at the HBCUs that needs to be replicated at the predominantly white institutions? I have my own theories about it because I went to University of Florida that you talked about, but from your personal experience, just from having so many diverse um, interactions and, and leadership positions in a lot of these HBCUs, what's being done there differently that's giving these amazing outcomes that we're not seeing at some of the other schools? Uh, HBCUs have, well, that's actually three. There are three things. One, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about what they have uh, that is uh, probably the, the replicable ones and then the one that can't be. Uh, one, mm -hmm. they are typically uh, smaller. Uh, right. So our largest HBCU now, I think it's North Carolina A&T uh, or it's either Texas Southern, uh, and you're talking, you're still talking about 15,000, uh, 15,000, 16,000 students, right? And so uh, when I, I'm a, additionally a Penn State alum, so, you know, Penn State, we're talking 60,000 students. Right. So uh, when we're doing a freshman class, government uh, English, uh, even at uh, 16,000, we can still run them. A uh, hundred or less, you know. Uh, when you're getting to uh, sixty thousand, you're doing thousands or more uh, in that same class, large auditorium. So HBCUs are typically known uh, for being culturally more congenial and comfortable, uh, easier to navigate, uh, and so some of the um, human sociological stresses of large group setting uh, and trying to adjust and find your way, way making, I guess is the word, uh, mm -hmm. that happens at large schools, uh, you don't have that same problem. And then when you get to the Kentucky State's Morehouse's uh, Spelman's, that group, the mid-range group, you're typically talking around three to 5,000 people what you talked about, that third piece, is something that's really interesting to me because of the fact that you said that the racial impetus, that confidence, and, and that's something that I've really always been, I guess, a little jealous of a lot of my friends that attended Florida A&M University. I have tons of friends that went to undergraduate school there, and they seem to have a certain swag that that <laughs> confidence that like hey we can't be touched and at the university of florida so it was like go gators and everything i had a great experience there but there's something and it's almost intangible that i see in them one of my um uh sorority sisters and, and one of my co-workers actually as well she talks about the fact that when she's teaching um some of her high schoolers when she encourages the, the students, the seniors to go to an HBCU, a lot of times the parents will come and say, why are you doing this? You're going to yeah. stop my student from being able to be exposed to a predominantly white institution where they're going to be able to learn skills to navigate society better. How do you counteract that where in our community sometimes 
parents are feeling as though it's really maybe too sheltering for the student to attend an HBCU because they're not going to be exposed to what the true reality is in society. What, how do you counteract or is there any merit to that argument when yeah. parents are feeling a little bit scared about their, their child being insulated at an HBCU? Yeah, now it, it's actually, it's so interesting. It's something we do, we try not to talk about, but it's actually mm. the inverse. It's even uh, just before this call, I saw uh, Kamala Harris on television, uh, who's, who's a Howard University alum. Mm-hmm. And the uh, there is, a, I guess, a fourth one that I wasn't going to talk about, but our, the, the campuses also have uh, a set of intentional developmental aims, right? And so hmm. we are very clear uh, that we are preparing students to go out into uh, the world. Uh, and so there are clear and consistent messages uh, about their need to be ready uh, when they get out into the world, uh, that uh, there are certain expectations for speech, poise, delivery, hmm. character, integrity, um, uh, almost sounds almost like Motown finishing school. That uh, <laughs> so we expect you to know the content and to master this content, uh, but we also um, the lack of a better word, there's an expectation of sort of a, a racial representation that yeah, when you go out, uh, mm-hmm. you need to you need to demonstrate the best mm-hmm. of uh, of your background and your race, and so that is that is a huge that so that is that intangible sort of that you're seeing. So mm-hmm. it, it it's uh, it never resonated mentally for me. You know, I just was a student. When you're a student, you're just a student. Uh, when I went to, I went to uh, Penn State uh, to get my doctorate, and there was something called the Summer Research Opportunity Program, and then the CIC, uh, which is the sort of academic half of the Big Ten um, recruitment program. And there was a conscious and consistent focus in the Big Ten. And if you look at how many people who have graduate degrees from the Big Ten did their undergraduates at HBCUs, talk about the Wisconsin's, the Michigan's, the Penn State's, the Illinois, Purdue's, Indiana's, uh, it's because there was data. They had data, uh, which was shocking to me, uh, that gave them the decision to, quote, unquote, preference. This is in graduate school admissions, uh, students from the HBCU uh, in hmm. graduate school admissions. And I'm like, well, that, I, that sounds, you know, sounded sort of affirmative action-y. And I'm like, well, what hmm. is that about? And they said, well, no, that's not what this is. The day, it's a good return on our investment. What hmm. we found is that uh, the students from HBCUs graduate faster and hmm. Uh, are more, one, are more likely to complete, and two, are more likely to finish faster on focus than black students from uh, the PWI. And this is 
I'm like, this is very odd because I thought these institutions were supposed to be intellectually challenged, you know, all the public mm. narrative of question and concern. Uh, but sure. what they'd found on the qualitative piece was that uh, these students, uh, quote unquote, uh, had been sheltered for four years and prepared to come into a world like this. And so when HBCU students arrive at the Big Ten for graduate school, they're fresh, they're excited, they're confident, you know, they're ready to take on the world. There's no challenge too too big. Uh, they're making a cause for their community. Uh, and they come in and they do extremely well. Uh, their compares sometimes from the PWI, when they come in, they have gone through four years of microaggression, Fire. Fire. Uh, of, of torture, torturous yeah. experiences, mm-hmm. and they are also a little tired. That's not to say they're not yeah. smart. That's not to say they're not gifted. But they have, they have, I don't want to struggle wasn't the word they used, but they've endured more social and psychological conflict during the four years. And so when they come to grad school, it's just a continuation of what they had for the last four years where uh, those HBCU grads are coming in and they're fired up. They're like, oh, I'm ready for this. This is what they told, you know. And so, uh, and it is amazing. It did prove out. I worked in the Big Ten over a decade at University of Illinois, Penn State, and Indiana. And uh, those students come in, put their head down, do what they're supposed to do, get their degree, and they're gone. Hey, everyone. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the EdUp Experience. I want to remind everyone that this episode has been sponsored by Data-Driven Marketing. I've personally known the CEO and president of Data-Driven Marketing, Jay Casper, for over 15 years. We've worked on a number of projects together, and what I can tell you is if you want to increase the number of prospective students and enrollments at your university or college, you need to check out Data-Driven Marketing. Jay provides a level of customer service that is unmatched in the industry, and I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate having someone I trust helping me grow a university that I work for. Please check out datadrivencollegemarketing.com. That's datadrivencollegemarketing.com. Now, back to the EdUp experience. Wow. That's uh, that's quite a testament there. Go ahead, Joe. Well, I wanted, you know, you're you're mentioning the Big Ten a bunch, and, uh, you know, this is a quick transition in topic, but, you know, the Big Ten just famously um, postponed its – Football season. Football oh, season. yes. Don't remind me. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I bet. <laughs> Big Ten me. fan, you're probably really disappointed. Uh, but uh, but KSU also, Kentucky State University, is also not able to move forward with its sports programs. And, um, you know, I guess the question I have for you is, you know, uh, uh, well, two questions. How are, most of us, 
uh, I say most of us who work in higher education, I think are the it's not an afterthought necessarily, but the number of students in athletic uh, scholarships, athletic teams is generally a, a minority part of the overall campus population, right? There's more students not in athletics than there are generally exactly. in athletics. And so, so it's sort of this afterthought, but these people are, you know, these students are really affected. It's a double whammy. Now you're maybe going to school online and you can't play the sport that you love. What's their psyche look like right now? How are those students doing? And, you know, I guess the bigger question is, is it, you know, there's rumors out there that students are going to transfer to a school that is uh, going forward with their athletic programs. Is that is that rumor? Is that just conjecture? Are you actually seeing students consider that? We've we've not seen it yet. And the I think what is forestalling, not just here but nationally, that intercampus transfer uh, that people pretend is the fact that increasingly it's looking more and more likely uh, that large volumes of institutions may not uh, play. So right. if you could actually transfer to an institution who says they're playing uh, today on the 14th, and then you wait uh, about five days, and as soon as you're settled in your residence hall, that campus that we thought was going to play uh, ultimately doesn't play. Uh, and so uh, the the transferring hasn't happened. There's a mix in the students. Uh, for those, and what's so interesting, we're Division II. Uh, I spent most of my career in Division One. Well, all up until now. Uh, the, the D1 players, uh, are having a bit more angst uh, in this area, particularly uh, those who are seniors uh, who might be draft eligible uh, in the various campuses, those who would have been, and, and a Florida alum, you'll appreciate, a Heisman uh, candidate, because mm-hmm. you all seem to rack them up uh, every <laughs> other year. We um, do have but, our share. We definitely have our share yeah. of Heisman. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, for those players, they are asking the uh, same ways in which our students are asking, well, what is the job? It is a job market question. What is my job market going to look like come May uh, in the pandemic? Those uh not being differential or, or hierarchical, but those blue chips, the D1, are asking that question, what will this mean for my ability to be drafted? You know, so they're feeling that pressure at a, at a much, much higher weight uh, than the D2. The one thing I have learned about student-athletes, Lord, have I learned, uh, is that they really – love playing sports. I mean, they right. that is really just their thing. So uh, so when they're fighting, and I, I serve on the NCAA President's Council, so when they're fighting over their eligibility or their register year, I need one more year. They took my year. Uh, to us, it's like, you know, uh, before now, it was like, I don't get why. What is this press? And it's not about the scholarship. It is not about um, anything that they really just want to put. 
put on their uniform, whatever uniform it is, and play. Uh, and so for all student athletes, I think that thanks of it all is that uh, I'm not going to get to put on my uniform and play, which is what I love doing. Uh, but for everyone else uh, who's a blue chipper, it's like, what does this mean to my ability to be drafted? What does this mean uh, for the and, – and, and, and God forbid those families who have sacrificed. And I'm working with the NCAA. I've learned things that I just didn't imagine about families who let their children go live with other families so they can be in certain school districts or uh, children who have had booster support since middle school and have gone to private schools and, and preparation for getting into a certain college. And it, so some people's life trajectory is in a world of work related to athletics as a profession. Uh, and so those people are going to be viewing this uh, very differently uh, than just the I love playing basketball athletes. Yeah, I guess that's an important distinction, right? You know, if you're D1, the yeah. possibility for being drafted, you're looking at this as an interruption in your entire future that you may have been yeah, banking exactly. on one way or another versus maybe in your D2, you know, maybe the bigger worry is what is this student going to do with all of this extra free time that they have? You know, are they going to exactly. be now mentally strong and mentally healthy hmm. because sports, for all intents and purposes, is absolutely a stress uh, it's stress management, it's enjoyment, and dopamine, and all of those things, competitiveness, and all those things that come with being in sports, teamwork, and if you don't have that outlet and you're somebody who relies upon it, uh, it's easy to fall into other less desirable areas. And so I, I would think that's probably an area of focus then for, your, for you guys, Kentucky State. Exactly, and as a, as a former poor-quality golfer, uh, who, you know, a faculty member, I went out to golf at least uh, once a month, uh, even even poorly. Uh, but you have muscle memory, you know, so I I can do it, you know. But I, I not long ago, in the last two months, I went to top golf, which is basically just a driving range with uh, chicken wings and, and uh, you know, sweet tea and french fries. And I'm like, <laughs> my first swing, I'm like, whoa, what, what is going, what is going on? And so for those people who uh, have been student athletes, and certainly student athletes for a while, uh, their impact not only to their mental health, their psyche, but also to their muscle memory and uh, their long-term ability to play the game. We we have no clue uh, what the unending are going to be over and over for years to come. Mm, interesting stuff. And Liz, you want to, you want to yeah. take over? Yeah, my uh, question, I guess, was to piggyback on when we're thinking about students and student success, we, we're thinking about the athletes, we're thinking about how the, the school interacts with the community. Talk to us a little bit about um, the idea of you know, how the school uh, can serve, in this case, HBCUs, but just schools in general, how can we serve 
our community better with programs like Upward Bound and exposing our students oh. to just the reality of college. Because some people may not be familiar if they, you know, I came from a high school with 90% black. So mm-hmm. some right. students, uh, some families or some some uh, of us in higher education don't understand maybe the importance of programs like Upward Bound. I noticed that you guys participate in that. So why is that something that maybe schools need to be aware of in terms of exposing our black and, and students of color to a college experience. Oh yeah. You're my sweet spot now. That's that's my <laughs> full wheelhouse. So for years, um well, long story short, I I I ran across this word once uh called steward and I'm like, that's such an odd word. So I, you know, this is before Google. I looked up in the dictionary, and so I every I'd always talk about steward, and you know, that's one of steward and behoove. I'll I'll drop those on you in at any given <laughs> moment, and so uh, I I started talking about universities, and when I got to Alcorn, which was my first presidency, I started talking about what I called stewardship of place, uh, and it is that as a a university, a public institution, a HBCU, in a community. I believe this is. I'm serious about this. Any university, I don't care how small you are, you have a responsibility for stewardship of place. Uh, mm-hmm. And by that, I mean uh, that in the space that surrounds you, your presence should make a difference in everyone's life. It should matter in a fundamental way that you operate uh, and mm-hmm. that your operation could impact everything that surrounds you. And if, I believe that if each campus did that, uh, mm-hmm. stewarded their place, uh, then we begin to have uh, compound improvement uh, sort of nationally. And so to that question, uh, all corn, just wherever I've been, and now Kentucky State, we take that as it is my staff, a place very seriously. So uh, this uh, Upward Bound, this one, I'll, I'll go to that. But this year, in addition to Upward Bound, which is where we're serving in the high schools, preparing them for uh, college access. And I'm a thousand percent clear, not just Kentucky State. You don't have to come here, but we want you to know that you're going to need some level of post-high school information, whether that's college, whether that's a certificate, whether it's an associate mm-hmm. degree, even the trash collector. I use this all the time. I'm not sure how old people are, but when I grew up, the trash man came, the trash man, which was not the trash man, trash collection came. Uh, on Tuesdays, Thursday, you had the trash can out. Uh, it was Two men often inside the truck driving. I don't know why there were two, but there were two inside the truck, and there were two <laughs> hanging off, off the sides <laughs> on the back. They would jump off, pick up your trash can, mm-hmm. dump it in, put the can back. Actually, most mm-hmm. times throw it on the ground, not put it back. Right? <laughs> that was trash collection. Now... <laughs> Everywhere I've lived of late, there are multiple trash cans for your different recycle levels, blah, blah, blah. They have to be turned a certain way outside. 
There's only one trash person in the truck. And he has to know enough geometry and physics for proper vectors to drive that truck in a certain angle. He has to know the technology to run the computer that's now in the trash truck. And they push a button. And the arm of the truck now comes out, magnetically pulls your trash can, lifts it up all by itself, dumps it, and places your trash can back on the ground. And so shakes it, you too. Cannot Sh- shakes be, it to get all the, the, the stuck trash yeah, in there. Yeah, shakes it. Before, it does. Yeah. Right. You cannot, be, you cannot yeah. be a high school dropout anymore mm. no. and work for trash collection. You you have to you have to understand physics, geometry, and technology to do trash collection now. And so Upward Bound is helping us uh, make sure people know you're going to need something else. I don't care what it is, and it may not be our school, it may not be our majors, but you're going to need something else. You can become a phlebotomist and draw blood. That's a 10-week certificate program. True. Every medical procedure other than dentistry requires blood to be drawn. Everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to need something post high school. They don't do phlebotomy in high school. So uh, Upward Bound helps us with that. Uh, when I arrived a couple of years ago, we started something called the Early College uh, I tried to get two school districts. I only got one, but that's fine. Frankfurt uh, Independent School District. And I said, I wanted every high school student, I've not gotten to my goal yet, I wanted every high school student to graduate, if possible, with their high school diploma and an associate's degree from Kentucky State. Hmm. Uh, that's going to help with uh, family. One, you can go straight to work. That's a wrap. You got it. You have a college degree. Now, if you want to go on and get a four-year degree, uh, that's on you. Uh, and even if you're going to do that, now you're going to save money in terms of uh, student loans, student debt, college costs. Well, this year, we're down the ending, uh, going into the third year, every student Frankfurt Independent School District, every student graduated with Kentucky State University credit. Every student wow. graduated with Kentucky State University credit. And the first time in history, one student, I want more, but one student got his high school diploma and his associate's degree the same time. Good for you guys. Yeah. So That's now I just got amazing. to pass that up. I've got to yeah. pass that up. But that, right. that's go. what I think colleges uh, should yeah. be doing. They should be helping. We, we now host the Senior Citizen Fish Fry. But the, 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 the campus should be a hub for convening and serving the community and making the lives of the families around the community better. 
For sure. And Dr. Brown, just to, and, and uh, thank you so much for sharing that because that's really, we, we talk about that all the time. How can we better serve the communities that we're in in higher education? So you really hit the nail on the head. And just to just be um, cognizant and respectful of your time, I'm just going to ask the, our last couple questions that we really love oh, to get no, some insight on would be, what do you see, and you can ask these in any order you'd like, what do you see as the, the, the direction or the future for higher education? And is there anything else you want to share with us about Kentucky State University and the things that you guys are doing there to contribute toward that? And, and let me say, uh, this higher ed is going into a new, you, you want to make me write something on it. Uh, <laughs> I can't wait to read it. I'll, I'll be the first one to read that article. Yeah, Generation 2.0 or something. I'm actually going to think yeah. this through now because okay. you just captured it. So okay. in higher ed, and let me say, the more we learn uh, and the more we're exposed to, uh, the, 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 the more enlightened we become. You know, mm-hmm. growing up, I didn't like broccoli because mm-hmm. My grandmama didn't cook broccoli. My mom didn't cook. That's not something we had. So you see it. Didn't go in the trash, did it? The, with, right. The, the trash so, man came yeah, broccoli. yeah, that wouldn't have been a very good. <laughs> right. So when I got to college, you know, it's like, oh, no, we haven't brought us like, oh, okay. Uh, and, and back to the, S, the HBCU thing, we also had training. So before Xerox or any of the corporations came for interviewing or career day, there were trainings. There were uh, meal training, dress. We knew if Xerox was coming that we wore uh, gray. We knew if IBM was coming, we wore blue. Uh, so, we, you know, we, how, which forks to use. And so that's how we, I learned to eat broccoli because we were taught you had to eat what was ever on the plate. Uh, if you liked it or not, you had to eat enough of it and move the rest of it around. So, uh, so I learned to eat broccoli. I love broccoli now, right? Mm, because I've been exposed to it. Uh, and that said, when I, I was my undergrad, believe it or not, was actually elementary ed. I used to be an elementary school teacher, fifth grade, bad, mm-hmm. bad, bad fifth grade teacher. Then they moved me to second grade. I was a good second grade teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I always believed that if you were going to be a good teacher, you had to be what we call, quote, unquote, traditionally trained for the four years, college, university. You know, all these people who were talking about Teach for America are just like, oh, God, those aren't real teachers. So then move forward many years, I become dean of education at UNLV, uh, first black dean in the university's history. I'm at UNLV. I'm the dean. They do teachers of the year for the Clark County School District. They're 10 teachers of the year for Clark County School District. Eight of them were Teach for America. Wow. One of them was a school called University of Southern Utah, and one was UNLV. One, 10% of the teachers who were Teacher of the Year came from my school. 80% came from Teach for America. And I'm like, whoa, something is wrong. And so I guess what I did, I made friends with people Teach for America. I'm like, what are Mm -hmm. y'all doing? My people are supposed to be winning and get, and much to the chagrin of my faculty, I started a partnership with Teach for America. 
and Teach for America courses began being taught at UNLV. Because I want my teachers to be teacher of the year. That is what's happening now for years, myself included. We've said online education doesn't work. You need a traditional Mm -hmm. voice. This is not going to work. Mm -hmm. Now, guess what? Kentucky State, University of Kentucky, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, everyone is offering courses online. Online. Mm -hmm. And so this question about what is the direction of higher ed, we are going to now have to rethink what we said were our core values, Mm -hmm. what we said were our core outcomes, and what is the value proposition for the service we provide? So like we talked earlier about, uh, you know, just as a case study, two schools in Florida and what one school was able to do because of its size, because of its teaching mission and its racial composition to help students, uh, one group of students that sort of gave them a value add, a little swag, as you said, even though they had the same English content, used the same mm-hmm. book, North mm-hmm. Anthology, they had this extra thing. And so now if you're telling me now that we can get this content that we used to say could only be delivered one way, now everyone is delivering it multiple ways, uh, we're going to have to be very clear on what the swag is that we provide our students because uh, everybody's teaching English online uh, next month. Everyone is teaching math online Mm -hmm. next month. There's some face-to-face for nursing or education or music, but by and large, it's hybrid, high flex. Uh, And so if families are going to pay, uh, you know, 10,000 a year at Kentucky State, or 60000 a year at Harvard, uh, we better be really clear <laughs> on what they are getting for that money. Uh, I think some schools uh, have a head up on that, uh, but I think all of higher ed is really post-pandemic, going to have to be very clear on what we do. Second, how do we provide student engagement? If there are no sports going on, if students are social distancing in certain sectors, what, how are you going to maintain social engagement? Uh, this year, we're doing a high volume of single rooms uh, in student housing. Uh, how are we going to promote uh, personal, interpersonal development? If you've never had to fight with your roommate over the volume on the television, uh, and learn how to resolve that conflict or learn how to resolve the conflict of of who who left the room unlocked or turned the light mm-hmm. on. That's a part of what we said we were doing. Uh, if everybody's in the room by themselves now with a mask on, where's that socialization process? Where are all those things happening? And I think that's really our work. Getting the classes online, which as, as I said to my board, uh, the March meeting or the June meeting, whichever one it was, that was the easy part. Hmm. Uh, rebuilding a campus culture while people are taking things online 
That's the hard part. Hope you enjoyed that episode. To learn more about the EdUp Experience, please visit edupexperience.com. And if you want to be in on the live recordings, please sign up for our email list. Go to edupexperience.com and sign up to be a subscriber. We'll let you know how you can listen in live and get the scoop before anyone else does. So, Please, as always, feel free to share this podcast, rate, review, and subscribe. We would really, really appreciate that. You've been listening to The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business with your hosts, Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liva, and Elvin Freitas.